So our goal this year is cultivating shalom. Shalom is, uh, get a little uh, feedback there. Shalom is life as it was meant to be. Our life healed from sin and brokenness. Our life in the garden as it was in the beginning and our life as it will be in heaven. And we, in the Bible, get to cultivate that here now. Uh, the kingdom of heaven breaks into the world through the church. So to learn more about this, we're, we're looking at Acts, which is the, the start of the New Testament church. And Todd's led us through the first two chapters, and we looked at Jesus' bodily ascension up into heaven and the Spirit coming down and dwelling in the midst of, of the young new church. And then the description of the early church community, of them living, living together as one. And we're, we're picking up right after that this morning in chapter 3 with a story about their witness uh, to the Jews. And before we dive into this awesome story, I want to talk about the purpose of Acts and therefore the purpose of this passage right here. Um, so a doctor named Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he also wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is about Jesus' life. And Acts is really a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. There essentially used to be one book. Um, but Acts is a continuation of Jesus' life. Uh, Luke says what Jesus continued to do and teach. Uh, but as Todd mentioned, Jesus is ascended right in chapter 1. Um, and so the assumption is Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the church. Uh, because he guides it by his Holy Spirit and he, he lives within the church. And so when I talk about something the church is doing, um, sometimes I'll talk about something Jesus is doing. And sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes it's, it's just, I didn't even think about it and just said it. But Luke sees those as the same thing. Um, and so we should too. Uh, and so the reason Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is this. He says at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Having followed all things closely for some times past, I have undertaken to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught that you may have certainty, he says is the reason. In the original language in, in the Greek, Luke's word for certainty means a thing proved, uh, an, un, an undoubted truth, uh, our idea of a fact uh, that's secure, that can't be shaken. And so for us to have certainty is why Luke is writing Acts and why he writes Acts 3. And I'm wondering, is that interesting for you? Uh, would you say that you know for certain that you've proven without a doubt that the Christian God exists, that Jesus Christ is his only begotten son in such a way that cannot be shaken. That's why Luke is saying he's writing this to you today. Now you might be surprised by this. Uh, Harrison, we're in church. I thought what we were doing here is not certainty or facts, but it's faith. And faith is a leap in the dark. It's, uh, you can't know for sure, and so you have to kind of jump, sometimes even blindly. If we had factual certainty, we wouldn't have to have faith, right? I want to suggest that for Luke in the Bible, certainty is not opposed to faith, but certainty is actually the foundation of a true and lively faith. Faith is not a leap in the dark, but it's a step, say, maybe onto a frozen pond. You don't take it in the middle of the night. You take when the sun's out. You check the temperature. It's five degrees outside. Okay, should be good. You test it with your foot first. Okay, you go get your sledgehammer, hit it really hard, okay. You send out a few people a little heavier than you. All right, going out there. Good luck. Uh, and then, after doing a lot of, of testing, um, you can know pretty much as good as you can know anything in your life that if I step out there, I'm going to be okay. And so for Luke, faith is that step you take 
but he wants you to have a tested certainty that gives you the confidence you need to take that step and a bunch of others. Because for Luke, for a living faith, he wants you to ice skate on this pond. He wants you to do twirls and jumps. And for, for us to have that confidence, we need some level of certainty. And so Luke, how do we get this certainty, especially over something that happened 2,000 years ago that we weren't even there for? Luke thinks that you get it the same way that we get certainty today over stuff that we weren't there for. You go to court and you bring up a bunch of witnesses under oath and you have them tell their stories, give account of what they experienced, bring up evidence, proof, you interrogate them, you assess their, assess their character, their stories, and then after looking at everything, hopefully you have enough certainty to make a decision, to take a step. And Luke thinks you can in this case. And so in our passage today, we're going to look at the witness of this lame beggar to the Jews. And it's also combined with the witnesses of Peter and John and the witnesses of the Old Testament scriptures. And Luke is going to suggest three certainties that we can take from these witnesses. Uh, And I'm going to describe them to you with the image of a doctor's office. All right. So the first certainty is the certainty that the doctor is in. So you go in the office, sit in the waiting room, uh, someone's gone back there, seen the doctor, come back out, put up a sign that says the doctor's in. Certainty the doctor's in. Second one is the certainty that his name is Jesus. It's not Peter or John. It's not some unknown spiritual being. It's not some combination of all the gods that have been out there. This is a personal, it's one guy. He has a name and his name is Jesus. That's the one who can heal you that's back there. And then lastly, the certainty of your appointment with him right now. The nurse comes out, calls your name, it's time for you to go back. Certainty, doctor's in, his name's Jesus, and you got an appointment with him today. So these certainties can help you take a step towards this open door and go in and get treated by this doctor. So we're going to look at those. Uh, Before we do that, let's let's pray. Father, um, we, uh, many of us, have so many doubts. I have doubts, Lord, about a lot of these things. Um, and it can be really tough to, to follow and obey you, Lord, when we're in the midst of um, just questioning and wondering. Um, and so, God, would you uh, honor Luke and his desire to give us the certainty today? And would you help um, give us more sureness, Lord, to be able to go out there and ice skate? Um, would you give us through this, this passage, um, through the sermon today, through your own Holy Spirit's working in our hearts, Lord, would we be able to leave with confidence that you are who you say you are, and we can trust you, and we can obey you in our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first certainty is that the doctor is in. Look with me in verse 1. You can look in your worship guide or in, in a Bible if you have one. Um, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth, so the, the Greek word is lame from his mother's womb. So this is a crippled man who has probably malformed legs. Uh, the bones aren't straight, don't look normal. He's never used them his whole life, so there's basically no muscles. They're very, very thin. Um, and so this is the kind of guy being carried in. Man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Now we know from later in this chapter, this man is 40 years old. So for most of those 40 years, this, this man's friends and family would carry him in, sit him at this gate, where thousands of people come in and out each day, and his only means of survival, because he can't work because of his legs, is people giving him, like religious people going in, giving him money. 
And so you think about this guy's life from your earliest years, your physical appearance will cause people to wince, to be uncomfortable, to step back. And then also your, your only means of survival will cause people to walk by on the other side, to feel pressured and guilty. And you're not someone really who's experienced much shalom in your life, are you? This is exactly the kind of person that the Dr. Jesus seeks out. And he does so here through Peter and John. Look in verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. So the point of this language here is that Jesus never just heals somebody. He always sees them first, especially people that other people don't normally see. He gazes into their eyes, and it's actually a name that God has. It's El Ra'i, which is the God who sees me from the story of Hagar. And so through Peter and John, Jesus doesn't go past. He stops, and he says, look at me. And the beggar fixes his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Again, this is another classic Jesus thing to do. Remember the paralytic? Pick up your mat and walk. Jesus said stuff like this all the time. And Peter says in the name of Jesus, and that doesn't mean in Jesus' honor or something. It means by his authority or the one whose power is about to do this right now is a guy named Jesus. That's what that means. And he took him by his right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So imagine these bones correcting, getting straight, getting thicker, the legs straightening out, getting longer, the muscles growing rapidly, the skin stretching. And it doesn't, it's not just skinny legs that come out of this. It's legs that are young and strong that can do some squats because look what he does, leaping up. Never stood up in his life, leaping up. Stood and began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. 40 years old, never walked a day in his life. And now he's jumping. Can you imagine the difference of this man's life from this moment on? Can you imagine what it would feel like to be that guy? It's not just a taste of shalom, right? This is a, this is a big bite. This is a feast. This is heaven breaking into earth, life as it was meant to be. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And then Peter does this speech. Uh, you know, he says the power came from Jesus, not from us. But we're going to look at that in points two and three. But 2,000 people are converted to the early church this day. It's a huge historical event. And right after our passage, Peter, John, and this previously lame guy are taken in front of a council of religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And they're interrogated. Uh, and the, the language of the text goes, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And they said that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. So they let him go, finding no way to punish them, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So this is the witness of the lame beggar to the Jews, and the point of this section is to give a certainty that a sign was done. And a sign in the Bible is something physical that points to a greater spiritual reality, like, like a sign on the door saying, the doctor is in. You haven't gone back there yourself. You're in the waiting room. Someone's gone back there. They put up a sign that says, the doctor's in. The sign 
is the physical sign. Dr. Zen is the biblical sign. And then the, the fact that the doctor is actually back there is the greater spiritual reality that the sign is pointing towards. Now, this isn't any ordinary doctor, though. This is someone who's really compassionate, someone who seeks out people that are not experiencing shalom, and who has the power of creation at his fingertips. I mean, who else would be able to heal a man like this? Now, everything else in this passage is based on you believing that sign really happened. That this event really took place in history. So I want to take a second to interrogate our witness. This previously lame man's testimony, as we would in a courtroom. Um, what might you ask? I think for me, I would ask two questions. I would say, number one, how do I know this really happened 2,000 years ago? What if these guys are making this up? And number two, if this really happened, why aren't we doing these kind of miracles today? Why, like, let's bring up some paralytics. Let's heal them right here in front of you all. Those are the questions I would ask. So let's, let's look at those. First, how do I know this really happened 2,000 years ago? I think this is a much harder question for us now than it was for Luke's original audience. And here's why. I think there's good reasons, really good reasons to believe that Acts was written and distributed about 30 years after this event took place in the mid-60s AD, which is easily within the lifetimes of pretty much all the people in this story. It would be really difficult to make up a story, write it, distribute it, have it take root, start a massive early church based on it, if everyone's still around from this moment, right? For perspective, 30 years ago, Home Loan 2 in theaters, uh, Bill Clinton running for president, is president. Uh, Mortal Kombat video game just came out, the first one. If you're old enough, you probably remember some stuff from around that time. Imagine you went to a, a mega church uh, for like 20 years, and there's a guy who, who outside the front door each, each week was there uh, begging, asking for alms, and then somebody shows up and heals this guy, uh, totally heals him miraculously, goes in front of the, during the service, does a speech, converts 2,000 of the people to a different religion. They all leave. Go, all right, see you later. You think you'd remember something like that? <laughs> you think if you went to that church and didn't remember something like that, you and thousands of other people have no recollection of that? You think you'd let people get away from making up a story like that? <laughs> I don't think so. I think Luke is right in expecting certainty because he's expecting his audience to fact check this with the people that were there, that are a part of the early church, or even with their kids if those people have died. I think this guy could be jumping around at age 70, right? He was 40 in the story. He could be 70 now <laughs> when people are reading this story. Go talk to him. So you could argue that this could be a bigger miracle to pull off that kind of deception than it would for this miracle to just happen in the first place. Well, you might say, okay, okay, well, then why aren't we doing these kind of miracles now, though? It doesn't seem like our world operates in this way. Uh, this is a debate within Christianity that many Christians would say, actually, we are. Uh, you just need to come and see. Um, come, come to our church. We're doing these kind of things all the time. Um, come and see. So we at our church have healing prayer once a month where we uh, bring, if you have an ailment, you come back there and we pray for you. And we are actually expecting God to hear that, hear that prayer and to change your reality based on our asking him. Uh, but we, you, might, you might wonder, though, why don't we experience something as obvious and as public, though, as this? Like maybe, maybe some of that might happen, but could be the placebo effect, maybe. We don't know. But how about something so public as this? Um, our denomination would say that this miracle here is an example of the extraordinary working of God. 
extraordinary as opposed to the ordinary working of God that you experience day in and day out. This miracle, like I said, is a sign, which means it's a testimony or pointer to a greater spiritual reality, particularly at this point in the church, is that Jesus is God's son. He's with these guys, and you can trust him. You can trust his followers, and you can trust that their words are coming from God and not from somewhere else. It's a testimony to new spiritual revelation from God. This is how we got our New Testament, essentially. But we would say that this new revelation now is finished, and it's sufficient for us now, and there's no more need for signs like this to testify to it. That doesn't mean God doesn't work in extraordinary ways now, that he's not doing miracles now. Um, It doesn't mean that God's ordinary work isn't super miraculous, because it actually is. But it does mean that this particular miracle is public, it's obvious, and it's hard to refute because that's the point of it. It's a sign. Now, I might be tempted to think, well, if I had a sign like this for myself, you know, I might have a little more certainty, Luke. Uh, Jesus would say, yeah, actually, yeah, you would. It'd be really good for you to have a sign. Let me tell you, you got one. It's right here. (laughs) I gave you this one. Uh, Also, 14 others in Acts and a ton of them in the Gospels with more legitimate historical attestation than most any other event you've ever read about from this time period or even a thousand years afterwards. That's your sign. I might be like, well, yeah, I got it. That's not enough, though, you know? Uh, I could be nice to see with my own two eyes something. Then then I could have more certainty. Peter uh, addresses this question, actually, and he says, what we have in our Bibles, and we're going to talk about this in the Bible seminar coming up, what we have in our Bibles is more sure more certain than what he experienced with his eyewitness account, with being there in person with Jesus. It even says on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus transforms into his godly form before them in blinding light, Peter says, your Bible is more sure testimony than that. And Jesus actually says, um, hey, if you don't believe the testimony of the scriptures, I hate to break it to you, but you wouldn't even believe if someone came back to you from the dead. The problem is not the proof is something in your heart. So even if your heart's doubtful after all that, which mine, again, still is a lot of times, suspend that doubt for a second with me and, and go with me. What if this really happened? What would it mean for me and for you? Peter's about to tell us in his speech, but before he speaks, I want to suggest it would mean that beyond a doubt, there is a spiritual realm that exists that we cannot see that was breaking into this world at this moment in history through these guys. It means that there's someone or something that has a power to heal this man in an instant. The doctor is in. And it will mean that that immensely powerful spiritual being was with these two guys. And whatever they say next, we should listen to like nothing else matters in the world. If this really happened, that's what... The conclusions we can't get around. Those are the conclusions of 2,000 people who converted to the early church after this moment. The doctor is in. So that's the first certainty. The second certainty, the certainty that the doctor is Jesus. It's not enough that that we just know there's some doctor back there. We need to know who it is. Who has this kind of power? Peter says in verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, and you 
denied the holy and righteous one, actually asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we, meaning me and John, are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter gives some really important background here. To, to, to paraphrase the speech, he says, the doctor responsible for the healing is both the servant of God and the author of life. And this is one of the many places where we get the idea of the Trinity, that Jesus somehow is a servant of God and also God as well. So Peter's saying, Jewish crowd, the author of life is the one who you know as Jesus. You might remember him, you know, the guy you denied in front of Pilate, uh, traded for Barabbas, um, put to death. Remember that guy? Um, we, Peter and John, were with him in his life and ministry. We saw God raise him back to life, by the way. And we actually just saw him heal this crippled beggar. And let me tell you, we are certain that he is the author of your life. So yes, the doctor is in, and we know him, and his name is Jesus. Now, many of us in here, uh, not all, but, but many may say, amen, I know that. Check. Next point, Harrison. I think many of us would also say that we really struggle to go to the Dr. Jesus with our problems. And so I'm wondering, do we really know that Jesus is our doctor and not someone else? Doctor, metaphorically, it's good to go to your, um, you know, general practitioner doctor. Um, but do we really know that Jesus can actually be our doctor of our bigger problems in our lives? Uh, we find ourselves a lot of other numbers in our phone of other doctors. We find ourselves in other waiting rooms, getting other treatments. And I wonder, why is this? I think one reason is that you're constantly surrounded by other voices claiming to be your doctor. Uh, do, we, do we have an image on the screen here? Yes. Uh, here's a, a Coke commercial. This is just because we're sponsored by Coke. I didn't put this up here. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We don't have any sponsors. Um, this is uh, open a Coke, open happiness. Ladybug, sun, sun rising or setting over a field. Um, the doctor is in right here. I want happiness, I just go buy a Coke. I guess I don't really need to obey Jesus, actually. I've got an alternate opinion from another doctor. So notice that ads often capitalize on places you might not feel shalom. Maybe you don't feel very happy. And they offer their conception of shalom at that point. But notice that Coke shalom, the way to shalom might be a little different than Jesus's. Open a Coke, open happiness. It's simple, it's obvious. But you might really choose one day when you're at the end of yourself emotionally uh, to, to open a Coke, maybe a, a few slices of cake, uh, rather than go to Jesus in prayer, expecting more shalom from the Coke than you would from Jesus. But here's the hard thing, is that Coke didn't draw up the plans for your life. Coke didn't knit you together in your mother's womb. Coke didn't write the story of your life. Coke didn't die for you. Coke doesn't even love you. You just wants your money. <laughs> Plus, generally, we know from most all science that Coke's pretty bad for you, right? <laughs> Open a Coke, you could say, change the ad, gain weight. <laughs> Open the Coke, acid reflux. Open the Coke, diabetes, type 2. Uh, Open the Coke, die early, a little early. Um, should we listen to Coke or Jesus about the shalom in our lives? What do you think? Now this one is easy, uh, if you take a second to think about it, which often we don't, but there are a lot of other doctors in your life that point you to their conception of shalom. Your parents, 
would be one of these for your formative years of your life and then afterwards. Celebrities, influencers, people you look up to now in your world would be one of these. Your friends would be one of these. Your spouse, even your pastor. The remedies that we offer, these, these groups of people in your life can be good. They can even align with Jesus sometimes. But let me tell you, these people didn't make you. These people didn't write your story. I'm not the author of your life. The doctor is in and it's Jesus. Only he knows what you really need for shalom. And here are his specialties as a doctor. Blotting out your entire record of sin. Breaking the the chains that bind you in sin patterns every day. Giving you freedom. Bringing lasting reconciliation between you and others in your life. Resurrecting you from the dead and carving a way for you into heaven. And one day, this doctor is going to reach into your eye and pull out every last tear as he heals every brokenness in your life. That's your doctor. His name's Jesus. So there's a certainty that the doctor is in and the certainty that it's not somebody else. It's this guy, Jesus. And the third, lastly, the certainty of your appointment with him. For the rest of chapter 3, 17 through 26, there's a lot of dense theological language, but Peter is saying essentially three things. First thing, hey, Jews, God knows you didn't know who Jesus was when you killed him. It's okay, but he used it for his plan anyways. Classic God, right? Second, don't you remember the prophets spoke about Jesus in these times? Moses said this would happen, and when it does, you need to listen to what this prophet says, or else you're going to be destroyed. And then third, God sent Jesus to you, Israel, first, before the Gentiles, because of his covenant with you. He wants to bless you in hopes that you would repent, be forgiven of your sins, and you'd have a time of refreshing before Jesus comes back and restores all things. So to summarize all that, the doctor is in, his name is Jesus, and you, Israel, have an appointment with him right now. He wants to bless you. If you don't go in, you're going to die of your condition. Won't you go? 2,000 Jews did that day, went in to the doctor. And as we'll see in Acts, the doctor is also rejected by many Jews and also rejected by the Jewish leadership. And eventually God sends the doctor to the Gentiles and it becomes, if you're not Jewish in here, it becomes our day. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles emphasizes this moment in a lot of his letters. He says in 2 Corinthians, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Or in Romans, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is near. The night is gone. The day is at hand. Paul's exhortation to us Gentiles mean this, is that you are in a unique time in salvation history when God is accepting your repentance, allowing us to come to him. And that door is going to close one day when either you die or Jesus comes back. And that could be tomorrow. Now is your time, so take advantage of it. Your appointment's here. The nurse is calling you. Go and get up and see Jesus. Because your appointment's going to pass, and you're not going to be able to get in with this doctor again. He's a busy guy. But you might be wondering, okay, now's my time. What does it look like for me to get up and go in there? Get out of the waiting room, go in where Jesus is, and get some treatment. I want to suggest a couple things. Perhaps for, certain, for some of you, You need more certainty before you can go in. You just heard the story. You got a lot of questions about this Bible book. I get it. Luke gets it. 
perhaps your step towards the door is reading more of the scriptures this afternoon, researching your questions about it, texting Todd or myself or one of the elders here to ask those questions. Maybe it's coming to this Bible seminar we're doing in February, which we'll talk about during announcements, where we're going to talk about the trustworthiness of this book and why we think we can trust it. That's a step towards the door for you. Maybe for others, you do have enough, and your step is actually going into the doctor's office and sharing with the doctor what really ails you in your life. It's prayer for the first time or for the tenth time about a problem. Prayer is our way to go in, and you can pray. We're about to do a song. You can pray during that song to Jesus. You ask him, I need help. I'm struggling. Doctor, heal me. And then waiting and seeing what El Rai does, the God who sees you. What's he going to do with that? Maybe for others, you've, you've already gone in to the doctor's office, and you've actually been given medication to take. And really, it's the struggle of trying to obey the words of the doctor over the, the voices of other doctors that might be out there. Uh, it could be finally forgiving someone who's hurt you during this next song, forgiving them in their heart seven times, 77 times, the same way you want to be forgiven by God, forgiving this person being free of that right now. Maybe it's coming into the light about a a sin struggle, confessing to somebody, a trusted friend or to God about something you've been struggling with. Today, Today for lunch, after church, you can invite somebody to go. Don't be alone in that anymore. Listen to the words of your doctor. It's good to be in the light. Maybe it's reordering your priorities in your life. It's getting on your phone during this next song and deleting stuff off your calendar that's getting in the way of you being with Jesus. Either personally in prayer or being with his people in church. Whatever is getting in the way. Priorities in front of your doctor that might be killing you. Maybe it's taking that step. I don't know what it is for you, but I'm hoping that the Spirit is going to tell you. So wherever you are, you can be certain though that your appointment is right now. You're sitting in the waiting room. The nurse is calling your name. Are you going to go in and see Jesus? He wants to heal you. Let's go in together in prayer and song. Let's pray. Jesus, our doctor, Lord, uh, we need you. And Lord, you know there's a lot of barriers to us getting in that door uh, and seeing you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, during, during this next song, during today, today, Lord, would you take away some of those barriers and help us come into you? Um, Lord, would you open the door for us or maybe come out in the waiting room and get us if we need that? Um, Lord, would you uh, give us the healing we need? Would you hear our prayers that we're about to pray to you? And would you respond, Lord? Um, And would you restore our our faith and and our certainty in who you are um, through these steps of faith? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.